Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Hey everyone, so before we get into today's episode, I just want to tell you about a great opportunity. You see, we've had a massive interest lately in learning a second language, and I do a lot of my language training with my very good friend Ollie Richard. We've been friends for three or four years now, and he's been on my program, and I've been on his program, and he spoke at my conferences, and I've spoke at his conferences, and he really is a genius. His techniques for teaching languages are just out of this world. He actually makes it fun and enjoyable. He was one of the main drivers for me rekindling my interest in Spanish. And under his tutelage and his advice and using his programs, I went from really crummy Spanish to quite fluent in a really short amount of time. So if you are looking to learn a second language or maybe even a third language, what I want you to do is go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash language forward slash language, and it's going to redirect you to some of all these best courses out there in the world. And there's some special promotions going on, some special opportunities for subscribers of my podcast. So I hope you take us up on this offer and go and check it out. That's expatmoneyshow.com forward slash language to get the best resources in the world for learning a second language. Okay, let's get into today's episode. Enjoy. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe. This is the Expat Money Show. And today's guest is the president and CEO of Jefferson Financials and serves as the publisher and editor of Gold Newsletter, which has been the cornerstone of precious metals advisories since 1971. He is also the host of the annual New Orleans Investment Conference, the oldest and most respected investment event of its kind. Please welcome to the show, Brian London. Brian, how are you? I'm doing wonderfully, Mikkel. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Great to talk with you. You as well. You know, we've done a couple of things together in the past, but we've never had you on the podcast. So I'm super thrilled to learn from you today and have you share a bit of your knowledge. I mean, you have the longevity in this space, so I'm, I'm really pumped about today. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting market. It, you know, the gold market is many varied, lots of ways to invest. Uh, but lots of things going on right now. We're at kind of an historic turning point in the market, something we've anticipated for a number of years. Uh, And, you know, it's typically a cyclical market, but there's a lot of interesting things going on right now that seem to be much longer lasting. You know, I don't think this bull run that we have right now is a fly-by-night, you know, rally for a few months and then settle back kind of a thing. I think we're, we're really seeing a turning point in not only gold, precious metals, but uh, but money in general, money and currency and relationships therein. Well, absolutely. I'm seeing a massive paradigm shift in many aspects of the world, and it's happening so fast right now. And I want to dig into all of these things with you. But first, give me a little bit of backstory. How did you end up working in the precious metals industry, into publishing, into the investment conference? I, I, I want to hear all of it. Sure, sure. Yeah, I got a degree in news editorial journalism and uh, kind of uh, shifted into that like, you know, like a leaf down the stream kind of a thing. I ended up doing what I could do fairly well, which was write and communicate. And um, and and so ended up 
graduating in journalism and realizing there weren't a whole lot of jobs in journalism and they didn't pay very well. So I was working for a small, very small advertising company uh, in New Orleans and saw an ad in a newspaper for a junior copywriter, not even a regular copywriter, but a junior copywriter for uh, Jim Blanchard's Coin and Bullion Company. Um, and it, that was still a lot better than what I was doing at the time. So I applied for the job, uh, entered a writing competition with all the other applicants um, and won that and got immediately to work, uh, literally two days before my start date, writing lots and lots of advertising copy. But in the process, I got to meet Jim Blanchard, who is just an extraordinary individual. Um, very charismatic. He was known as the original gold bug. Um, and he was largely responsible, or at least instrumental in getting gold legalized for American citizens uh, back in, you know, he started Gold Newsletter in 1971, the day that, uh, that he heard that Nixon closed the gold window, which was effectively uh, ending the convertibility of overseas dollars, not in the U.S., but other countries sending dollars back to the U.S. and taking gold in return. So that was the last remaining uh, tie that the dollar had to gold. And once that was severed, uh, Jim knew that what we were in line for was really unrestrained money printing, uh, dollar creation, inflation, and all of that, and that people really needed to own gold to protect themselves. Uh, unfortunately, at the time, it was illegal to actually own gold. Uh, you know, like heroin or plutonium, uh, owning gold would send you to jail. Uh, so that shows you how wacky the uh, how wacko the the system was back then. Uh, so Jim began to advocate for the legalization of gold ownership. Used Gold Newsletter as his primary tool in that. Held uh, press. Uh, conferences where he would hold up a smuggled two ounce bar of gold and dare the ATF and the Treasury to uh, come arresting, which they never did, unfortunately. Uh, he uh, towed a legalized gold banner over President Nixon's uh, second inaugural, uh, which, you know, would have gotten him jailed today for sure as a terrorist. Uh, did a lot of crazy things, but that was Jim. That's the kind of things he did. Uh, and it got it legalized in 1974 and decided to have a, a conference, uh, you know, telling U.S. investors how to invest in gold, which he did. And that started our conferences, now called the New Orleans Investment Conference. So the New Orleans Investment Conference is in its 46th year. The gold newsletter is in its 50th year. Uh, so we've been around a while. But, but I joined Jim as a junior copywriter in 1985. Uh, and by 19... Uh, I guess by 1999, Jim had passed away um, and the company had already gone through some iterations and Jim took me and kept the newsletters and the conferences and sold the, the coin and bullion company. But Jim passed away in 1999 and, you know, I looked around and like the uh, cockroach after the nuclear holocaust, I was the last thing around, the last one surviving. And uh, so I took the, uh, you know, the enterprise under my wing and have been running it ever since trying to to live up to the legacy of Jim Blanchard and really educate investors on the sector. Uh, it's, it's a sector that it, that's intimidating for newbies, but it's just vitally important um, that investors have a, you know, some significant portion of their wealth protected in, in gold and silver. Uh, and it's an opportunity to make money from the associated investments that kind of leverage the metals. So, uh, you know, it's, it's an up and down, been an up and down uh, market for many years. And now it's on the upswing and just beginning, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I would agree with you there. And, you know, I've been fortunate. I'm a subscriber of yours. I'm a big fan of your work. So, I mean, I write, read a lot of what you have to write and your opinions on the space. So I, I feel very grateful that you do the work that you do. Um, I think it's really important stuff. Well, thank you. You know, the, the key thing and in this age of post-pandemic where everybody's had to pivot and try and kind of refigure out how they, what they create and how they deliver it, um, I've done a good bit of thinking on what we do and what our message is. And our message, you know, besides all the details and intricacies, the basic message we've always had is value. 
uh, we, we basically try to deliver way more than what the, our subscribers and conference attendees are paying for. Uh, you know, fan, absent all the, the, uh, the fancy marketing and distribution methods and everything else, if you deliver more value than people are, are paying for and you deliver what they want in terms of content, you're going to be a success. And if you keep it simple that way, then it'll all work out in the end. Absolutely. And I think that you will also build that relationship and the longevity with your customers, which I'm a big fan of. But I want to jump into what is happening in the gold markets right now. Why are we seeing this massive new interest in precious metals? Like I was in the last gold market that took us all the way up and then all the way back down again. Um, I should have sold last time at the peak, but I, I watched it go down. Do you think that we're going to see similar things to what happened last time? What's, what's happening right now? I, I really want to know. Well, it is, as I alluded to, very complicated because last time there's a lot of ways to look at it. If you look at the last bull run being from, say, 2000 to 2011, then you look at a market that took the gold price up eight and a half times over. Um, and I'm sorry, seven and a half times over. And if you look at the last bull market being from the post 2008 lows, then you see, uh, or actually the 2008 lows in the, in the middle of the financial crisis, then you see a bull market that took gold up nearly three times in price over the course of about 18 to 24 months. So there's two ways to look at it, the longer term or that shorter term burst. I think this market that we're entering right now uh, it's going to be more akin to the longer 11-year kind of a cycle. Uh, in actuality, which I, I think that what we're going to have this time is either a very long-term secular market in the metals, uh, and if it is cut short, it's going to be cut short because things get so way out of hand that there has to be some sort of a monetary reset. Um, and the reason is, is primarily debt. You know, ever since that day in 1971 that uh, Nixon severed that tie to uh, from the dollar to gold, central bankers have had the ability to print currency uh, in an unrestrained manner. And so they had this power to not just lower interest rates, but create liquidity, create currency. Um, without any limitations. And they did that. And, you know, I, I tell people that back then it was kind of like uh, handing a teenager uh, the keys to the car and a bottle of black of, of, of Jack Daniels, you know. So the central banks had this newfound power. They immediately went out and rode the car into a ditch. And that was the 1970s. Uh, from then on, they were a little bit more circumspect in it. And uh, from the 1980s on, uh, they didn't quite get out of control like they did in the 1970s, but still, after every economic slowdown or economic hiccup, they had one prescription, they lowered rates. And in, in my presentations, I have a chart that shows this, shows the, the federal funds rate after every recession or economic slowdown. And you notice that in each rate cut campaign that the Fed has undergone, the lows in the interest rate were lower than the time before. And when they tried to normalize rates, they never even got back up to the midpoint of the range that was before. So since about 1980, it's been a steady stair step down if you look at those bottoms in interest rates until post 2008. And so they went from the second floor down to the, to the foundation. Uh, and the next step is into the basement to negative rates, which you know, we don't know if they're going to do that, but that's logically the next step in the trend. The, the thing that's happened during this um, period uh, is that lower rates encourage more debt and the whole political process encourages more debt. And before we went into this COVID pandemic, the, uh, the federal debt was already out of control. Uh, and I've been arguing this for a couple of years that uh, it was impossible to have interest rates that were positive in any real or inflation-adjusted way because the debt was so large. The, the cost of servicing that debt would overwhelm everything else in the budget. So you couldn't have, it was impossible to have any, any uh, significant real rates, interest rates. Uh, 
the thing that's happened now in the pandemic is that everybody who didn't listen to that argument before can now clearly see that things are just absolutely way out of control. Uh, the debt has soared to, I mean, we got we created more debt um, in terms of a month than in many recent years we've done in a full year. So that's what's happened is everything's accelerated. It's just exploded to the upside. And it's become obvious to really everyone now that uh, we're in a new kind of monetary regime where no one, uh, you know, every everybody involved in the political, the fiscal, and the monetary process is trying to outbid the other in terms of debt creation and spending and currency creation. And, um, and so this is, you know, a ripe environment for precious metals, even mainstream uh, pundits out there, you'll see on CNBC and the financial news networks are saying, gotta buy gold, gotta buy gold. This is just the start of something that's really a secular long-term trend at this point. And we've seen this increase in debt under the Republican side, which is supposed to be the the ones who want a smaller government. Now, if the left gets in, I've seen some of the numbers that they've proposed, and it's it's just unbelievable. Um, but do you know of any other countries out there that have had these, you know, basement interest rates that you can think of that maybe we could look to as an example? The first one that would come to my mind might be something like Japan, because I think that um, even though the United States has never gone this way, I believe that other countries have, and maybe we can kind of look at what the result of that was. Yeah, the result in Japan have been, has been decades of subpar growth, basically a zombie economy because the government, the central bank has overcome, has taken over so many aspects of the supposed, of the financial markets even, uh, being the primary buyer of not just government debt, but, but equities and the like. Uh, and so that's the, the reason why there's serious hesitation on the part of the Federal Reserve to go into the realm of negative interest rates uh, and the like, because they can look at Japan as an example where it didn't work. But still, they only have so many tools in their toolbox. And although they've talked about negative real rates as something they're not they're not seriously considering and is not appropriate for the for the U.S., uh, they've never completely ruled it out. And you can uh, you can bet your bottom dollar, which is obviously not worth that much, increasingly worthless, but you can bet your bottom dollar that put to it in extremists, they will go to negative real rates, uh, negative interest rates rather, negative nominal rates, because that's just one of the, the next steps that they have that they can take down this path. Um, and the number of steps that they can take are limited and they can create other alphabet suits and programs and the like, but it all adds up to depreciation of the currency. And, you know, when you talk about other countries out there, uh, that brings up the point that, you know, throughout history, um, this has always happened. You know, governments have always overspent, you know, in ancient Rome, they, they went on military uh, campaigns and, and overspent. Uh, they had overspending on entitlements even. Um, and, and they created debts that couldn't be uh, managed. They, they couldn't pay. So they depreciate the currency in which those debts are denominated. This has happened throughout human history in every civilization. It eventually happens. So from that standpoint, what we're seeing now is nothing new. It's, it's standard operating procedure. Uh, we're just at a moment in history where we have to recognize it's happening and prepare for it. But what's different this time is that we are a globally connected economy and that every economy out there, every developed economy and every developing economy is in the same boat. They've created debts that they can't manage. So, you know, previously when you had this, uh, perhaps an Argentina that, uh, that mismanages finances, well, they would devalue the currency, gain a temporary trade advantage um, and try and work their way out of it. But now every economy, every government out there is in the same boat. They're all trying to devalue their currency. They're all racing to the bottom of the same hill. So in that kind of an environment, what are the, can these currencies devalue against? And it has to be gold, silver, tangible assets, real things. <clears throat> you know, you talk about, you see all this talk about the dollar being strong or the dollar being weak. 
they're just judging who was temporarily in the lead or lagging behind in that race down the hill. The only way to really judge the value of the dollar is against gold. And as we can see, the gold price has been rising. So the dollar is being devalued. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's what most people do. They go, oh, wow. You know, several months ago, gold was at 1200. Now it's at just right around 2000. I mean, gold's had a great run. We've had a big increase. But I mean, let's flip it around a little bit and look at what the dollar has done, because that's really the measuring stick. Gold should be the measuring stick, not the dollar. Um, I think that that people need to understand the difference here. And when if we look at what gold has done over the history, you know, they say 5,000 years as a, as a unit of, of value of money, maybe 50,000 years as holding value to human beings. I mean, that has the longevity there. But look at what has happened in the last $100, $120 to a dollar. I mean, yeah. dollar used to buy a lot more than it does today. Like you can see that from, I know that from when I was a kid and I'm 37. Um, my dollar used to go a lot further. I'm sure if you go back much further, you'll really be able to see the difference there. Yeah, you can. And of course, they play games with the CPI and, and trying to track inflation. Uh, and it's absolutely ridiculous. We could do an entire podcast just on that, how they uh, employed hedonic deflators, uh, substitution, all these, these little um, uh, tweaks to the CPI uh, to understate the rate of inflation. And the whole system is biased to understate inflation. If you were a bureaucrat in the Federal Reserve or an economist in the Federal Reserve or the Bureau of, of, uh, uh, of Labor Statistics, the Labor Bureau, and if you, were, you came up with some great realization that uh, there was a new way to track inflation and in that we had been uh, underestimating inflation for years, well, your career path would be extremely limited. Uh, there's no way you would advance in the bureaucracy by coming up with that. Uh, everything is biased toward underreporting inflation, uh, primarily, I mean, for one, just one of many reasons, because of the cost of living adjustments. So the whole system is, is uh, rigged against reporting inflation. So and we know inflation is greater than, uh, than, it's, than it's being told to us. Now, the other thing is, you know, has the dollar depreciated? Uh, 35%, 40% this year as gold has risen. Well, that's just one measure of it. What, what you see with gold is that it has these catch-up phases, that there's been dollar depreciation all along, but uh, the price of gold doesn't necessarily reflect it in lockstep. Uh, the price of gold rises when, when people all of a sudden realize that, oh crap, this has been going on for a long time and the dollar really isn't worth anything. So Let's buy gold. Uh, and then they look ahead and they say, well, the dollar is really going into dumpsters, so they buy gold. So gold really responds with when there's uh, higher levels of concern in the market about the underlying currency. Well, we're certainly seeing that today. But what I don't understand, and maybe you can shed a little bit of light, how we're seeing the stock market still performing so well when debt is out of control. We have millions of people who are out of work, a pandemic that's raging and governments, you know, I don't want to make this an episode about how they're handling the pandemic, um, agree or don't agree. But I mean, we're seeing stock markets still rallying and I can't get my head around it. I can't, I can't understand why more people are not into tangible things like gold, like um, other types of precious metals, like agricultural land, real things that you can touch and feel and have substance. Um, for me, it just makes so much sense. It's just such a no-brainer. And I, yes, we've seen an increase in gold. And, and like I said, I do want to get into maybe some predictions, what you think the trajectory will be. But any comment from you on the stock market, why we haven't seen a massive recession in that regard? Yeah, because the, the stock market is more of a speculator's playground than anything else these days. And mm-hmm. the, the real goal of the Federal Reserve pumping out liquidity, uh, really even before the 2008 financial crisis, the part of what they were doing to the early 2000s is trying to pump up the real estate markets and the stock markets. 
Uh, and then they just had to accelerate and accelerate their efforts. But their goal throughout all of this was to pump up financial assets, equities, bonds, real estate, to create a wealth effect. So consumers would feel enriched uh, and you know they had these big uh, brokerage accounts and they would be more inclined to spend, creating or increasing aggregate demand, et cetera, et cetera. And it's a typical Keynesian view, economic view of the world. So they were successful. They built up this, these huge financial markets, these financial bubbles, these houses of cards uh, that they cannot let fail because if they do, then uh, at this point, the economy fails because, you know, there used to be the old adage that um, the stock market isn't the economy, but that isn't true anymore. It is the economy. It's so wide ranging and, and the economy is so dependent on these, this illusory, illusory stock market wealth um, that the, the Federal Reserve and central banks can't allow them to, uh, uh, to fall. And in an environment where the markets are driven by liquidity, uh, and it's not just easy money, but it's ever easier money because the markets are addicted to this monetary adrenaline, this monetary drug. And like any addict, they develop a tolerance and they need greater amounts of the drug to, to achieve the same effect. So it's not just easy money, they need ever easier money. And the Fed has been accommodating. Uh, so it's pumped up by this liquidity. And the interesting thing is that in a situation like this, uh, where the market's all driven by, by central bank liquidity, all correlations go to one. It's driving up all markets. So this the typical balancing effect you have by different asset classes, where some are contracyclical to the others, uh, and you'd have a blended portfolio mix, uh, that doesn't work anymore. You know, one of the interesting aspects of what's been happening is that modern portfolio theory looks back at different asset mixes and tries to figure out what the, the most efficient asset mix is for a risk-adjusted return. They try to hit this efficient frontier of highest risk-adjusted return. Well, you know, this has been employed in asset allocations and portfolio makeups for decades. And it's always backward, backward looking and adjust to uh, what the, the, the proper portfolio mixes are. Uh, but since post 2008, at the very least, all these correlations have all tended toward one and everything's been going up. So when everything is driven by central bank liquidity, portfolio mixes will start to reflect this. Uh, and so get riskier and riskier. And that even exacerbates uh, the risk to central banks of having these, this house of cards start to topple because everyone's so invested. Yeah, well, I see it all the time when people tell me that they, they're diversified and it's like, oh, you hold several mutual funds and then maybe a little bit of real estate or something like that. And you're going to tell me that you're diversified. I'm like, that's not diversification at all. Everything is correlated. Every single stock that's in your portfolio is all is all tied to one another. I mean, you need to be diversifying through time, through types of assets, through physical and digital. You know, you can't tell me that you're diversified when you have everything that's in a, a portfolio that is done under U.S. dollars. Yeah, and even geographically. Uh, I tell people that all the time. The best diversification, the best uh, way to protect your wealth is to diversify. Don't put all the eggs in, in a single basket. You're, the goal here, above all, is to protect what you have. And you've got to get some percentage of it. And, you know, if, if we've been success, fairly successful in life, uh, we can survive very well on, you know, some fraction of the wealth that we've accumulated. So if we're able to preserve at least that, then we and our loved ones will have a very good life and we'll be able to enjoy that life in some degree of security, financial and otherwise. So, yeah, you have to diversify. Don't ever put all the eggs in one basket. And, and that goes to the precious metals too. I, I tell people, you know, you don't want 70, 80% of your wealth in physical bullion. You know, you, who knows where that is because it varies according to your goals, your risk tolerance, uh, the amount of wealth you have, et cetera. But, you know, it's somewhere in probably the five to 15% range of where you need physical metals, but you need to have that. Uh, it's it's insurance, and you have to have insurance. 
Exactly. And I would argue that precious metals in your portfolio should be the foundation. This should be the bedrock of your portfolio. Oh, you want to go out there and day trade. Great. Have fun. Do it with a couple of percent. You know, don't do it with the bulk of your portfolio. Let's have a bedrock first, build that, then go forwards. And as it goes out, you can get a little bit more speculative. You can get a little bit more risky. But I mean, the people that just take everything and they throw it out there on a stock tip, I just, I just don't get that. I just think it's irresponsible. Yeah, it's, it's very irresponsible. There's so many people out there who've never been through a bear market uh, and they've never been through a bull market in gold and precious metals. Uh, but yeah, the, <clears throat> I tell people, because obviously it's just, it's, everything has happened over the past uh, six months, seven or eight months, and really over the last few years, has brought a lot of new investors to the sector. So I find myself talking to a lot of people who have no idea how to start in precious metals. And I always tell them, first off, get physical metals in your, either in your possession or accessible and not in a bank safe deposit box because one of the things you're insuring against or guarding against is a bank holiday or, or some in, in a lot of banks don't even allow precious metals in their safe deposit box anymore. So you have to find other ways to store, have some accessible, and then look at other ways to uh, store more physical metals or have paper representations elsewhere. Um, and even in that regard, you want to diversify. You don't want to have all of your, your stored bullion in one storage facility. Um, and that's why I typically don't recommend any storage facility, because even if I know the owner, I don't know all of his staff. Um, and, and so I, I never felt comfortable in recommending one storage facility. I think you need to, to uh, distribute your holdings among a few and not just in the U.S. And, and just try and uh, diversify even that aspect. And then there's so many other ways to invest in the metals, like you say, where you're not building insurance or buying insurance, but you're investing in trying to leverage the moves that you see in you know, the kind of a secular move in higher precious metals prices. Mm -hmm. Well, I know in my own travels, I visited private vaults in Switzerland, Austria, Germany, uh, all over the Middle East, Singapore, Panama. I've been fortunate to take tours and to meet the guys who set these up. And I will tell you, honestly, not all facilities are equal. Don't think by, by just, you know, not even just going offshore, but just any type of storage. They're not all, not all created equal. So I do encourage people to do your own due diligence, to read and understand, you know, have conversations. If you can visit the place, excellent. But I mean, that is your responsibility for sure. Yeah, and it's important to have allocated holdings too, where you have bars and coins in your name that are segregated under your name. And, you know, to whatever extent you can audit that or be comfortable and that's, that that's actually happening, you want allocated holdings. Absolutely. I only do 100% allocated, I think, fractional ownership with precious metals. I mean, what's the point? Like you're, you're giving up the reasons that you want to have precious metals. That is such a big part of it. That if you go into a vault and you drop off a bar and it has a serial number and you come back in one year, 10 years, 100 years, you will get that exact same bar back. Not another bar, not a bar that looks like it or smells like it or, you know, feels the same. No, you're getting that bar back because by being 100% allocated, you own that possession. You don't own a share in something else, in, in a larger thing. And they're not able to leverage that against other people and loan it out and do all the things that we don't like that banks do with our money. Right. The, fraction, the whole theory of fractional banking uh, should not be applied in precious metals bullion because that's the very thing that you're insuring against. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So talk to me about, well, first of all, let's talk about what your your beliefs are, where this bull market will go, and if you're comfortable, maybe some prices or some time frames, and they don't necessarily have to be joined together. I know that it can be very difficult to pinpoint an exact time and place, but um, I, I, I do want to hear your opinion, what we can expect. Yeah, the, the first law of investment punditry is you give a price or give a time, but never give both. 
but never together. <laughs> exactly. It's a trap. <laughs> that, that, that was where I was going with that. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, the it's hard to say because we are literally, at least in nominal prices, in uncharted territory. We've never been this way before. So you have to look at other kind of big picture, uh, broad stroke uh, comparables to see where we can go in this bull market. And first you need to identify the kind of market we're in. We're not in any kind of a, a bull market that's based on geopolitical crises or anything, which is never a reason to buy precious metals, no matter what anybody says. These things come and go um, and they're very short lived and you'll never make money in them or very rarely. When you get a bull market in gold and silver that's based on broad secular monetary trends, specifically debasement of currencies, um, then you have the kind of thing that's going to go for years and you got have the kind of broad based market that will evolve, uh, generally speaking, according to some you know previous experience. And, and so you look back to previous markets as a guide. And so if you look from you know, the first real bull market from 1974 to 1980, the price of gold went up. Uh, well, it, it went up a lot. It went up from like, depending on when you denote when gold was legalized, whether you look at the broader U.S. market versus the world market, it could have gone up 16, 17 times in price. But if you look at the lows of, say, 1976 of around $100, you look at the high of January 1980 of $850, then it went over that four-year period up eight and a half times in, in price. Uh, if you look at the period of, say, 2000 to 2011, um, it went up about seven and a half times in price. So if we're entering a market like that, where we're going from the lows seven to eight times in price, uh, then fantastically, uh, which means uh, a lot of things, and almost it also means unbelievably, but uh, we're going from a low of around $1,140. If we go up seven or eight times, you know, you're talking about seven, $8,000 prices in gold. Over who knows how long that could be a few years, three, four years, it could be 11 years, but that's the kind of, of move we're looking at. If you look at post 2008 and say this is a response to a financial crisis, you're looking at a near tripling of the price of gold from the lows. And in that regard, you're looking around $3,300 to $3,500 on the price of gold. So um, I like to tell people. It's just the start. We're going much higher. And, you know, you have to look at it two ways. Again, insurance. Well, if you think that the underlying currency, the dollar, and the underlying currencies throughout the world are all going to be depreciated and have to be depreciated because of the debt loads, then you want that insurance. You want to own physical metals to protect purchasing power, protect your wealth. Uh, the key being, uh, you know, you insure your house against a fire but you don't really expect your house to catch on fire. Uh, you know this is going to happen. You know the currency is going to be depreciating. So you're insuring against a, an inevitability, uh, which means you really have to do it. And uh, so you have to have, and you only have to pay the insurance premium once uh, to really protect yourself. So you don't, it's a long way of saying, don't feel like you missed the boat because from an insurance standpoint, you didn't miss the boat, but the boat you're on is sinking. So you better get on the boat that's floating. So you have to do that. Now, from an investing standpoint, this, these are the early innings of a, a game that will go probably into extra innings uh, this time around. So a lot of easy money has been made and that a lot of the mining stocks and junior mining stocks have just exploded in price. Uh, but we've seen that before in previous bull markets and the way it's going to evolve, we can see areas that have yet to move and that can move uh, many times over in price. And uh, from I can tell you that from 2000 to 2011, uh, absolute fortunes were made by people who got involved in the mining stocks, particularly at the junior end of the, of the spectrum. And we'd get into stocks that would go up three or four times in price, take those profits, get into another one that would go up three, four, five times in price. Every now and then you would get a 10 bag or even a 20 bag or more. Uh, 
and the, 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 the issue then becomes more of when to take profits, how to take profits, and how to manage your, your wealth so that at the end of the, the, the game, as it were, you have built your wealth instead of just had a few really bitter stories to tell. Um, so that, that's kind of where we are right now is we're into portfolio management stage of this bull market where to find the best mining stocks and junior mining stocks, where to find the commodities that have yet to move, uh, and then how to take profits along the way. So in your estimation, do you count, or in your advice, do you count that 10 to 15% of metals? Do you count your equities of the mining stocks into that? Or do you put that on top of your bedrock of physical metal that you own allocated? I think you you put it on top of your bedrock. If your bedrock is at least five to ten percent, then you can put another, you know. And, and again, these are broad ranges. I'm not an investment advisor and registered investment advisor. I can't give anybody individualized investment advice. So you have to look at where you are. Look at your, uh, you know, talk to your personal advisors. See what your risk tolerance is, because these investments are very risky. And if you're not willing to put in time, effort, money to research it, then you should just buy the indices, GDX, GDXJ, allocate and forget. And and you'll do well because those indices, the average mining stock goes up, you know, in a bull market four times or more, you'll do fairly well. But the sector is extremely inefficient. And and what that means is if you can put in the effort, you can take advantage of those inefficiencies. You can say find an earlier stage uh, junior mining stock that has the right management and or the right properties and or a theme that is really going to appeal to the marketplace and get into it early. Um, to do that, you need to go to three or four conferences sector that really allow you to talk to management and allow you to uh, to meet management, to ask some questions face-to-face, spend that time and effort. Uh, but it can be very rewarding because that's the only way that you're going to get into these stocks that go up individually, three, four, five, even 10 times or more, and then get into the next deals or be deployed in a, in a portfolio of these where not only is a rising tide lifting all of the boats higher, but you're going to have some spectacular winners in the portfolio. Well, I've definitely seen with some of the clients that I've worked in, they're like, yep, I've got gold in my portfolio. And when you ask them what it is, it's like GLD or it's, you know, like an ETF or something like that. So I think it's always important that people understand when we talk about this bedrock, this, this foundation, we're really talking about owning the physical metals and then the mining stocks or the ETFs or the funds or indexes, those come on top. And I, I, I think you're, you agree with me on this. Um, they're two separate things, although mm-hmm. they're connected there. You have to be able to differentiate between the two. Absolutely. You need, again, you need that insurance knowing that this big trend is, is going, but it's another step in the, the evaluation, you know, another step in the thesis is that, okay, you know that the currencies are being depreciated. You have to protect yourself with physical metals, but you know that relative to the currencies, the prices of these metals are going higher. So what's going to benefit from that? Um, And, you know, you look at the stock market, all these high-flying markets, but very few of the companies or sectors there are actually increasing earnings. Uh, The mining, the gold and silver mining industry is one of the few where you know that their earnings are increasing uh, significantly. Uh, in fact, the producers right now, uh, the, the prices of the big gold miners, uh, mid-tier to major, have yet to really reflect the higher gold level, gold price levels that we're at right now. So they're, you know, a bargain right now. And as the market develops, as this gold bull market evolves, you'll see that every now and then the mining stocks will lead, every now and then they'll, they'll lag, and you can allocate on that. You can see that the juniors will lead or lag, uh, and they've had some spectacular moves uh, so far. You'll see that it will expand and it will cover other markets. You know, there's, I tell people there's no such thing as a bull market in zinc or copper or even things like rare earths, energy metals, or uranium, um, 
unless there's an underlying. I mean, there's a bull market in the commodities, but there's no bull market in the equities until and unless there is an associated or an underlying bull market in gold and silver, because that brings retail investors, uh, investors of all stripes, really to the sector. And then they start looking for more opportunities. So as it evolves, you'll see copper stocks or copper slash gold stocks start to move. And that started to happen. Then you'll see the base metal start to move. Silver is famously the second to move once you have that bull market in gold. And we've seen just a spectacular increase in silver equities over the last few months. Um, but it's going to evolve. We're going to see things, more obscure things like rare earths develop at some point. The uranium market has been poised for a big rebound uh, for a number of years, and that's going to happen eventually. Uh, but you have to be prepared for that. And there are a lot of ways to play it. You know, I should mention that a lot of what we're talking about is covered in our um, investors guide to gold and silver uh, that's available on our at goldnewsletter.com. It's a free report. I wrote it and our staff research staff wrote it, but it is completely objective. I tell you all of the, the best newsletters out there, uh, not just mine. I tell you all of the conferences out there, not just mine, that really deliver value in the space and explain all the ways from basic bullion to numismatics to options and futures to mining equities, ETFs and the like, and spell out the entire picture for people kind of, you know, in one publication. Well, I totally agree with you. And like I said, I'm a reader of, of your gold newsletter, um, a monthly newsletter. And I love the way that you do things like I, I will be honest, it is not a flashy newsletter by any means. Like it is not super pretty. And, but I mean, it is solid content packed, like just like every page is just packed with actionable things. So I really do appreciate that. Yeah. One of the things that happened with the digital age is that we weren't limited to say a 16 page newsletter, which was already double the, the length of mo most newsletters. So from the aspect of the subscriber, they've really benefited because our newsletters run 30 to 40 pages now. Uh, from my aspect, <laughs> it's really a hell of a thing to produce every month. Um, but we do it, you know, and we do have our alert service that's more of a weekly service. Uh, but we're putting out an awful lot of content right now because there's a lot of things to talk about. And it's a lot more fun when everybody's making money and making a lot of it, which is just what's happening right now. So. I want to dig into a little bit about the mining stocks now, not necessarily about the companies themselves, because I mean, that can change at the drop of a hat, but I am interested in your, your criteria. What is it you're looking for? How do you make decisions about which companies, which mining stocks to recommend? Because that process of how your brain works and, and how you figure things out, I think is a valuable lesson. And, and I'm certainly interested to, to learn your your method, I suppose. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you say that. I was just talking about this with a, a mining company. You know, I talk to God knows how many mining companies every week, new, you know, ones, either updates and ones I'm already following or ones I'm just getting introduced to. And one of the companies I was talking to, you know, like a lot of them do say, so how do we get coverage in gold newsletter? You know, what, how much does that cost? And I just laugh at them and I say, no, it, it's completely merit based. You have to prove to me in the next 40 minutes or so that you make a lot of money for my readers. And it used to be that bar was something like, if I think the stock can double over the next 18 months, I think it's, it's something I would consider if there's a very high likelihood of that, that's a good return. Uh, now I tell them it's, I'm looking at, can it double in about the next six months? Um, and, you know, is it going to be something that's going to triple or more over the next uh, 18 months? That's the kind of market that we're in right now. Uh, you know, for many years, these junior mining companies have struggled because they, they can't raise money because the prospects were so dim uh, in the sector. And now they're all flush with cash. Everybody's looking to do private placements in them and they have lots of money to spend. The key now is which are the companies that are spending it wisely. In other words, going into the ground and not promotion. Uh, it's a sector that needs promotion. You have to get your story out there, but you can't spend more on salaries and promotion than you're spending in actual exploration because then it's just a circle. 
uh, that doesn't create any value. So you'll, you have to gauge a lot of different factors uh, and it takes a lot of experience. Um, but uh, yeah, they're out there and there are still good values and we still have to find that. So that's, that's where the standard is right now is I'm looking at companies that I think will double over the next six months or so. Uh, and it sounds fantastic. It sounds unbelievable. But that's that's where we are. You know, we've had companies that have gone up already in this market over 50 times in, in value from our recommended entry levels. Uh, we we have companies that have gone up five, six, eight times in value since April. And, you know, it's getting a little more difficult right now, but still it is a place is the sector where if you do your homework and you subscribe to the best letters and you find a company that's recommended in two or three of the best newsletters, then you know that that that's a good company. It's going to get a lot of traction and it has good prospects. Um, and uh, the other thing about this market is the rising tide is lifting all boats. So you don't have that risk of, of losing 80% of your investment in a stock uh, right now, or as much of, um, you know, depending on when you get into it, if it's a company that was rising on one good drill hole and all of a sudden the next hole is a duster, then yeah, that's an ultra high risk kind of a play. But if you get in early with good companies that are getting ready to drill, the downside risk is not as great as it was before. Okay. And do you look closely at the management team? Because it is it appears to me, especially with the junior mining stocks, that it's really so much about the team and the individuals that are involved. Yeah, that's that's one of the foundational principles of the sector is look at the companies that have done it before, uh, the groups that have done it before and know how to do it. And are good, uh, um, you know, they, they protect shareholder investments and, and they put it to work and and they're not fly-by-night outfits and you know they have money invested they have skin in the game and they have reputations to protect uh that's that's a a key factor and uh with that said i've seen some wonderful management groups that have gone around for years and never found anything because it's still a numbers game it's still a, a sector where the odds are um, stacked against a discovery that actually becomes a mine so what you're looking for in a good management team is not a company where the odds are in your favor, but they're less against you. Um, and that's why you need to have a diversified portfolio, put it, put your money in a number of sectors. But yes, management is a key sector. Bad management can, I mean, you need to find a good prospect, a good deposit, but believe it or not, a, a good prospect has been destroyed by bad management. Uh, I've seen it before. Yeah, and and you know they can dilute the company. the The prospect can be, even go on to be a very successful mine, but if in the process of developing that prospect, the company, the management team has diluted their share structure so much, you've never made a cent, even though that perhaps their market value, their market cap is increased, the shareholder can can end up not making a cent on the whole development. So what ends up happening with a lot of these junior miners? They make a discovery. It's well-managed. Are they getting scooped up by the, the larger companies? You know, because I understand that with a lot of the mines, the, the discovery to actually the fabrication of the metal can take a lot of times and can take a lot of, uh, a lot of resources. And it's, all, it's almost its own skill set for the team to go out there and to be able to, to take it to that next level. Have you seen that? Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's it's hard, and and uh, and it's a totally different game. You know, the odds of a, some discovery becoming a mine have been estimated at about a thousand to one. So the odds are against you from that standpoint. So you you need to 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 know when to get in and when to get out. But generally, you want a, a management team that that's good at exploring and perhaps even good at developing is not necessarily good at mining. And you want to be out of that play. You know, now we're in the stage of this market where most of the money is being made in at least uh, putatively safe political regimes, Canada, America, those areas. <clears throat> As it develops, people are going to get start to look in more far-flung locales 
that aren't necessarily as politically safe uh, to find discoveries in the light. So if a prospect is really good enough, you know, we had one company this year, a silver company that had a major project in Bolivia. And uh, people look at that and say, well, that's, yeah, sure, they're, they've got a transformation of government. They're, they're much more mining friendly, but they've all said this before, et cetera, et cetera. There's some risk there. Uh, and we recommended the company because the prospect uh, stood to become one of the biggest silver discoveries in recent memory. And it has shown to become that. And what I tell people is you're not betting on Bolivia or really any, not to, to single that out, or any country being politically stable for the next 10 or 20 years, your window on that investment is probably two years uh, because you want that company to make a discovery, build it, build a lot of value, and then its share price is reflective of that value. You can either just sell the stock or wait till it's taken out by a major, um, which is the end goal for most of these, these plays. They want to get taken out by a big company. And really for these big major mining companies, the junior sector, that's their exploration team. Uh, sure, they have uh, exploration teams, but they're usually trying to find other people's discoveries and get in them at a, an opportune time. That's kind of the way the game works. Yeah, I've seen that as well. It's the exit strategy, which is just so super important in this in this sector. So I want to change gears a little bit, Brian. I want to dig into your investment conference. I want to know a little bit more about it. Um, is it focused just on precious metals? Do you guys cover other things? Um, maybe you can tell us a little about the conference because I know it's coming up really soon. Yeah, this year it's October 14th to 17th, and we're going to be virtual this year as really every other event is or has been. Um Jim Blanchard started this in 1974, and he was a guy uh, that was, you know, flamboyant and over the top and, and really taught me that you just build value and value and value on top of value and everything else will work out from there and it'll be a success. But Jim would set the stage, as it were, set the precedent of getting really big name speakers for our conferences. For, and, and so he, he got Ayn Rand in her last public appearance, Margaret Thatcher, Milton Friedman a number of times, uh, Alan Greenspan a number of times. I mean, presidents, prime ministers, uh, really huge figures of modern history graced, have graced our stage, some of them a number of times. So when I took over the conferences and took over the business, that's a, you know, a tremendous legacy to try to uphold. And we, we've really tried to do that. So that's one of the aspects of our event is that we spend more and focus more on content and really big name speakers, really movers and shakers, influential people than any other event out there. And, and we're kind of known for that. We're also known for focusing on geopolitics and economics and then drilling down into the specific investment sectors. Uh, we're known for our main stage having completely objective, independent advice, uh, no sales pitches from people offering services or or publicly traded companies. We do feature these companies, but we do that uh, through breakout sessions and exhibit halls and the like. So we, we're very structured in that way. And, and it, has, it does provide value that keeps people coming back time and time again. Uh, and it's just an atmosphere of our event. There's an intellectual energy. There's an underlying uh, more libertarian oriented philosophy that really comes through in everything and people just feel it when they come. So that's been a challenge, obviously, uh, transforming at least this year into a virtual event, but we, we think we were able to do that. Uh, the key this year is that this disadvantage of being virtual also has its advantages. So I decided to transform our entire business model and make the, the conference Yes, the biggest, best four-day virtual event that anyone's ever seen. And I think we're, we, we're doing that. But also, we can extend that value for months afterwards and even weeks before the event by having, you know, using my network and having private Zoom calls that, people, that our attendees can listen into, our registrants can listen into and provide, you know, their input through Q&A and the like. We can have many webinars, many conferences uh, panels on bringing together top experts 
It's the kind of thing I, I kind of do anyway. But for a lot of my calls that I have people, I just press record. And I give this value and bring people into this these intimate conversations in, in rooms that I have uh, to get uh, get content, get expert views where the experts aren't afraid to talk. They know that what they're saying isn't going to be out on YouTube for anybody to see for decades to come. It's only for this kind of closed-in, exclusive uh, group where we come into the, the virtual room, lock the doors, and really let it all out and, and, and talk very frankly. That said, you know, we are our speakers this year. We've got just signed up Tucker Carlson. We have Robert Kiyosaki, Rick Rule, Peter Schiff, um, a number of people that you'll see on financial Twitter that are absolute, in my mind, geniuses <clears throat> and are being featured at our, our event. Um, I really encourage people to go to our website, uh, neworleansconference.com, and look at our roster of speakers. You're not going to see that level of, that, of lineup of experts anywhere else. And the good news is you don't have to be there to hear it all live. It's all going to be recorded. You're going to have access to it after the event. You're also going to have uh, access to a lot more content. A number of these speakers have agreed as part of coming or participating in this conference to have follow-up calls with our attendees. So we're going to do that uh, for months to come. And it's really the best value proposition I've ever seen. Um, and, you know, in, in this investment uh, intelligence, investment information industry. Absolutely. We hosted, I hosted my first ever virtual event in June. I had over 6,000 attendees and there are massive advantages to doing it in person. Yes, there's disadvantages. Yes, you don't get to go out to the bar and have dinner and shake someone's hand. But I mean, there still is a lot of really fantastic things. So I'm really excited to attend your event. I can't wait to, uh, to sit down and watch some of the presentations and learn and see what you guys are doing. And, and really what... Uh, what everybody's feeling, what everyone's take is on what's happening in the world and where we're going to go. So give me that website one more time because I do want my listeners to be able to check this out. NewOrleansConference.com. Yeah, they'll get the whole speaker line up there and they can also get have access to our investor's guide to gold and silver there as well. Wonderful. And if my listeners want to reach out to you, if they want to learn more about your newsletter, if they want to see some of your other videos, the other things that you go that you do, where can we send them, Brian? Well, they can actually uh, have access to Gold Newsletter from that conference website and vice versa. So Gold Newsletter is goldnewsletter.com. The conference is neworleansconference.com. But either, either website is kind of a portal to everything we do. Perfect. Brian, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. I certainly learned a lot and uh, I always love our conversations. Mikkel, a great pleasure. Always fun to talk with you. You do such a great service for your listeners um, and we're very excited to, to do anything with you that we can because I know that you deliver tremendous value. Your conference was unbelievable. Thank you very much. You're very kind. I'll talk to you soon. Okay, Brian? You got it. Thanks so much. Hey everyone, Mikkel here. I want to get some feedback from you, the listener. We're looking at ways that we can take the podcast in new directions, new guests that we want to have on the show, new ideas we want to share with you. So we have a lot of threads going for this at Expat Money Forum, our private Facebook group. If you go to expatmoneyforum.com, you can join the conversation. I want to hear feedback from you guys. What topics have we not covered that you want to hear more of? Do you want to hear more stories from successful expats who have moved offshore? Do you want to hear more business-related stuff, more finance-related stuff? Are you more interested in immigration and visas and passports? Is it the investments or real estate? I want to know what you are interested in. This show is not about me. It is about you guys. It is about all of my amazing listeners and trying to help inspire you and get you the best up-to-date knowledge every single Wednesday when I publish this show. So join the conversation at Expat Money Forum. Let me know what you think, what you want to hear more about, how I can best serve you. It's really important to me to make this show the absolute best in our space. And I think we're off to a really good start. 
podcast has been going for over four years now, which is just hard to believe. I seems like just yesterday I started it and the feedback has been amazing, but there's always room to improve. There's always things we can do better. So share your knowledge, share your expertise, share what you want to hear, share your wants, your desires, your needs, your goals, everything with us at Expat Money Forum. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to today's interview. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern time, go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.